Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program on our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. As usual, joining me today is Dr. Zubin Damanya, known to many as Z-Dog MD. Unfortunately, Jeremy has lost his voice, a terrible problem for a podcaster. As such, I'm going to have to do his part of today's show as well as mine. For 25 minutes, Zubin and I will engage in unscripted, and I predict hard-hitting conversation about art, politics, entertainment, and much more. We'll apply the lessons we extract to medical practice. I'll then pose a question for the two of us to consider that Jeremy might have asked to conclude the episode. Zubin, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. And it looks like you, all your years of being an understudy for Jeremy, Jeremy, they're finally coming to fruition. You finally get to step up into the lead role. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, let me start, Zubin, by clarifying, you know, another of the many rumors about you that I see on social media. So is it true that they asked you to be the king after the death of Queen Elizabeth, but you turned them down? I turned them down because, honestly, I didn't have a circular enough family tree to uh, have the requisite, you know, uh, uh, recessive genes to to be a monarch. Um, I was too outbred, honestly. That was part of the problem. You could have had sort of a poison ivy, poison oak kind of family tree, I think, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, all, all seriousness, seriousness, though, the, the loss of the queen was like the loss of a common mythology. We were talking about the hero's journey the other week, and this idea that we have this shared kind of identity. Most people in living memory do not remember, you know, not having Queen Elizabeth as the monarch of Great Britain. So it actually is a kind of grieving process for everybody in a way. Well, anyone under the age of 70 wasn't alive, and probably they don't have very many remembrances until at least age 10. So anyone under the age of 80 can't remember a time before that. And it probably anyone over the age of 80 may have forgotten some of the things way back then. So we're left with the fact that no one could remember a time without Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> I think that math is correct. Yes, I believe it. So anyways, Zubin, we heard from lots of listeners they enjoyed the conversation we had about Amazon's acquisition of One Medical and the implications it has for American medicine. Since then, as you know, CVS acquired a company called Signify, and the company employs 10,000 physicians to provide in-person and virtual at-home care. And United Health, which already employs over 50,000 doctors, signed a 10-year agreement with Walmart. In your opinion, Zubin, how nervous should physicians be and what do you recommend they do now? Well, I mean, I think this is clearly an epiphenomenon of how we've actually failed to do the job of healthcare that Americans actually want. And so private industry is stepping up and with the, you know, probable some degree of hubris that they can do it better than physicians. But the truth is uh, they have the resources, the drive, the time horizon and the incentive because they're paying their foot in the bill for their own employees. So, I would be concerned quite a bit if Amazon, if CVS, if these guys are all partnering um, to do this, that 
they're going to at least have a shot at succeeding on some level, and that's going to put the pressure on regular uh, physician groups and, and multi-specialty groups to step up as well. And this is something that's probably been a long time coming and probably overdue. I mean, I'd argue that we have refused to take the lead. And as long as there's a vacuum and a void, someone else will come into it. So why not be one of the big businesses in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the bottom line. And as, especially, you know, with the Amazon thing, it's interesting because, you know, they are, again, Iora Health, our partners at uh, our clinic in Las Vegas, to see it kind of uh, go full circle uh, back to Amazon, I'm just... Again, if they get it right, they really have a very powerful model in their hands. And if they can scale it for chronic disease, that the Iora model and for the consumer, the younger people, the one medical model, I would be very nervous right now um, if I were in the traditional healthcare system. And I think doctors can no longer just say, oh, you know what, um, I'm just going to keep my head down and, and hope it all settles out. It's like we have to lead uh, because if we don't, it, it really will be the sort of technocracy that leads it. And it won't be the best for, I think, the physician-patient relationship moving forward. So we do have to start to lead if we because we've really dropped the ball, like you said. You know, this morning, Zoom, and I published an article in Forbes on leadership, or at least what I see as its lack in healthcare today, so the listeners uh, should be aware, uh, you probably haven't had a chance to read it, but I'd like your thoughts on the following paradox. You know, from my perspective, the challenges in healthcare are massive, unaffordability, lagging quality, burnout, healthcare disparities. We could go on for the entire show today, just listing the ones that are there. Yet most of the efforts I observe that people and companies inside healthcare are doing, they're focused, Zubin, on a small, opportunity often, an incremental improvement. Do you see the need for a massive change? And if so, who should and who do you think will lead it? Well, what I think is happening is this is indicative of our societal shift in general towards this sort of micro thinking reductionism, left brain kind of scenario. The sort, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, um, misunderstandings about left brain, right brain uh, schism. By the way, Robbie, like uh, Ian McGilchrist, a psychiatrist, neuroscientist in Great Britain, wrote a great book called Master and, and Its Emissary about the actual debunking some of that mythology and the mythology that the left brain is the rational clear thinker sees you know strategically and so on that's not true the left brain takes holes and breaks it into parts uh, it always thinks it's right. It has righteous anger. Um, it's a reductionist, and it uh, is isolated from the sort of whole. And that's what it is. Kind of, it's a grasping tool. It's the right brain that sees things holistically as a bigger picture and sees parts in their context. And in medicine, I think what we've done is we've tried to, oh well, we can improve this little thing, or we can build this little widget a little better, and we build this little widget. And you forget that this is a multi-dimensional, interdependent organism that is healthcare. And so. Who, who, who is going to lead that? It has to be the, the, the sort of part of that organism that does the, the operating end of it, and that's physicians and clinicians and, and people in that space. And they really haven't. So what happens is now you have this sort of technical reductionism where you have people working on these different parts and they talk about, oh, I'm now I'm wearing a Fitbit and here's this data. It's like, well, how does that data plug into the bigger picture? The And what are the hopes, dreams, and fears of the patient that you're getting that data from? And how does this relate to outcomes that matter to them and that also save money in the economic game and, and so on? So it has to be... I think physician leaders in partnership with business leaders, in partnership with economists, in partnership with businesses 
because they, they have so much skin in the game. What is it? Half of all the spending in the country on healthcare is from our large employers and employers in general. So it, it, we have to look at it more with a right brain, left brain collusion, more of a balance. And we haven't done that. It, it's just like the rest of society. We reduce and reduce and reduce, and it becomes this technocracy. Are you saying that the right brain, and again, we're speaking really metaphorically, not yes. anatomically, but that the right brain is the more logical of the two hemispheres? No, it's more that the right brain sees things more in context. It is actually more emotionally intelligent, according to uh, McGilchrist, and he lays out in uh, like a thousand pages why this is so. It, it actually was the master in the original relationship. And as societies and individuals sort of evolve over time, the left brain, which was the servant, it actually evolved to, to, to help the right brain break things into parts and manage little tasks and things like that. It actually started to think it was the boss and that by breaking things into parts, you could recreate holes from the parts. And, and it doesn't work that way. It's actually... That's it's the it's the emissary suddenly usurping the role of the master, and this is all this is metaphor, but it's also uh, based on studies off split brain patients on people who've had strokes in different sides of the brain and seeing what happens. For example, people who've had right brain strokes where parts of the right brain are knocked out, they tend to not see things contextually. They're very concrete. They live in abstractions. They're unable to function in in society. Whereas left brain strokes, people tend to overcome them. Often you lose speech or language, and language is a very reductionist thing too because it breaks things into parts and subject and object, but you still function actually reasonably well. Um, and so it's really quite fascinating uh, that, and he, and he points out to Western civilization, as society evolves, it shifts to a more left brain kind of dominant space before it collapses. <laughs> and he goes through a lot of history in different big civilizations and what ends up happening. They become these huge bureaucracies. Bureaucracy is kind of the domain of the left brain. Um, and what you really need is a corpus callosum that, that connects the two, that actually brings balance where master and emissary are in harmony. Uh, and, and we're losing a little bit of that balance, it feels like, in, definitely in healthcare, uh, but in society in general. I love that analogy. Let me take it a step further. It seems to me that the context of medicine is the unaffordability for the patient. It's the fact that we don't do as good a job on prevention, avoidance of complications from chronic disease as we might. It's looking at the technology that we value, like the operative robot and the technology that we tend to minimize even now, like telemedicine, uh, it seems to me that maybe what you're saying is that as physicians, we are really trained in the left brain, you know, multiple choice questions with four answers, and that we need to have a lot more of this sophisticated understanding of the right brain. I, I that's exactly, I think you nailed it. And, and I think what, what, you know, in medicine, we really are kind of left brain oriented through our education. That right brain, that's why we ought to be screening physicians, not so much on MCAT scores and these kind of reductionist pieces, but on emotional emotional intelligence, creativity, imagination, those kind of pieces that are very right brain, left brain synergies. And like you said, I think taking a, taking a patient out of his or her context 
is problematic. Their social determinants of health and all of that are a big piece of it. That's their context, their family, their community, their culture, all of that rolls in. And it's the same with medicine. If you take a piece of data out of context of the bigger picture, it doesn't mean anything. And in fact, it leads to more reductionist poking and iatrogenesis and costs uh, from causing harm and those kind of things where we're doing things to people instead of for the larger person. Uh, so I think it is a very good metaphor, actually, a good model for where we might be going wrong. And it's not limited to medicine, but I think medicine is the best example of it because it's such a human enterprise. And when you start to see it go out of balance, people know it. They may not be able to articulate it, but being, but saying, oh, well, here's a model that might actually, you know, kind of put it in words in some kind of structure. It might be helpful for people to go, oh, okay, so how can we overcome that? So do you have a view how it's going to happen? Is it going to be an individual like yourself who started a program in Las Vegas? It had to close in the end, but today might have been successful. Is it going to be a, a medical group uh, led by some CEO? Is it going to be some type of medical society? How do you see this, I'll call it massive change, disruption is what a business student would call it, happening, a transformation of how healthcare needs to be provided, how are we going to get ahead of the curve rather than letting these other organizations like Amazon and CVS uh, beat us to the punch? Yeah, that's a great question. And disruption in the classical tech, you know, say a tech company or something disruption, it, it really is a very, it's almost like a single site mutation. Like you do this one thing better and you do it cheaper and initially the quality isn't as good and then, and then it, over time it gets better and it really suddenly that other big old school legacy company is out of business because you've disrupted their model. In healthcare, that kind of more reductionist left brain disruption can't happen. It has to be a holistic, multifocal, almost like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly every organ transforms and that means all the entities that you listed I think have to be a part of it they all have to to, to kind of wake up a little bit to okay what's the problem because a problem well defined is already half solved as they say and then each of us kind of starting to work on solutions but connecting with each other so that we never miss the big picture because otherwise we're just spinning our wheels in the dark like, like the old metaphor of the elephant trying to figure out what is this creature and blind people you know these blind wise men each touching a different part of the elephant and not understanding that it's an elephant uh until they actually talk to each other uh so th that's what we haven't really done a lot of is connecting across these different spectrum like you said the medical societies and the big healthcare organizations and the small healthcare organizations and the on the ground doctor and so on listening to you zubin i'm reminded of something that i read uh, about three historical figures who changed the way we see the world because i think what you're describing is that doctors need to see things different see them in context and these three people pretty famous galileo darwin and einstein and how their discoveries contradicted how humans see the world and ourselves. You know, Galileo broke the myth that we're the center of the universe. Darwin proved that we became human through slow evolution, not a sudden divine action. And Einstein demonstrated that everything is relative. And maybe we can apply this a little bit to medicine. Uh, you know, as doctors, we see ourselves at the center of medical care delivery. We see our judgment as the best way to reach the optimal approach for a patient's problem. But maybe, just what if it's actually complex data analytics or even artificial intelligence 
how will we know that we need to change and what do you think we're going to do about it? Yeah, you know, this is a great question because as you've pointed out, Robbie, in your books, physicians in particular are the masters of denial. So we can continue to drill down in our little piece of the world thinking that we're doing good and feeling, you know, at least convincing ourselves of it because we're generally pretty good people. I think what what happens though is we we need to <laughs> we need to wake up that it's not working and i think many of us intuitively feel it and you know some people will say well this is you know it's a function of burnout we don't get enough resources and we don't get enough tools and trust and teams and so on and to some extent that's absolutely true but to another extent it's just that we're drilling down in the wrong direction and i think people who work in primary care feel this very acutely because they see what's broken. They know kind of intuitively what needs to happen with their patients, that it is a contextual thing. It's a much more intricate web and they need the time to spend, but also the tools, like you said, the AI and the data analytics to give them the best possible tools. Everything that can be mechanized is mechanized and then apply it to that unique, complex human entity that's in front of you. And that has spiritual components. It has scientific components. It has psychological components. Everything is biopsychosocial at root. And to some degree, it's waking up from our own, our own slumber on this, our own denial on this. And I think people are waking up. So it might be that we don't even predict it, Robbie, that all of a sudden there will be this mass kind of tidal wave, the cultural shift will all wake up and then it will just start to, to avalanche the change. But um, that's an optimist's uh, view. And uh, I, I tend to be an optimist, so I'm hoping that it's right. When I look at it, and I wrote a little bit about it in the piece today, it would seem that the people who would really be pushing for a move from fee-for-service to capitation would be primary care. I mean, in a fee-for-service world, the only way you can generate more revenue is seeing more patients. And that's what's happening today. We're seeing more and more patients all the time, which means that the amount of time per patient is going away and all the things you just discussed, all of the contextual ways we need to understand the individual in terms of the social world in which they uh, exist, there's no time to figure that out. Whereas in a capitated world, the way you are economically successful is by taking out the things that add little benefit for the patient and by helping the individual avoid disease and avoid the complications from chronic disease. And yet outside of a few groups that are across the nation in primary care, I'm not hearing the big primary care societies pushing for it. Why not? You know, I think they've been burned by the promise of capitation not actually panning out in their lives. So if you're capitated and you and everything you said is absolutely correct, and that was our belief at Turntable and Iora, it's like, give us, give us a chunk of money to care for these patients and we'll do it right. Now the question I think becomes how much is that chunk of money because you can certainly spend more time and apply more levers and resources to those patients if you have a little more money per patient per month. Um, and then what your panel size is, what's your support, what are the tools that you have and the teams, the human resources, and then are you given the trust 
to actually have those outcomes happen if your skin's in the game somehow, um, you know, you're part of the organization and you feel really invested in it, then you will do that. But, you know, we all know the stories of, you know, there's some people who uh, they'll just, again, they'll, it's almost like a quiet quitting. They'll phone it in because they know they're getting, you know, this or that salary or whatever, and the patients are capitated, so they'll have a big panel, but they'll do the minimal necessary and the organization suffers. So I think it's just getting the details right. It's actually just figuring out those bits, and some of that is culture and leadership and those sort of things. But I'm curious what you think since you, you led one of these large, um, very successful organizations for so many years. My sense is that capitation generates fear because mm. you're now actually responsible. You can't just do something and expect to get paid for it if things go wrong. And you're absolutely right. You got to get the amount of capitation right. You have to have some protection against things like a transplant and other things that are just unexpected, COVID hitting the shore. So you need to have it negotiated correctly, but it does require things that I think are not intrinsically built into doctors after their training. One is this willingness to take risk. That's much more of an entrepreneurial piece. The second is it requires tremendous collaboration. Third, it requires that everyone agree on how they're gonna take care of a problem and having agreed, actually do it. And we love autonomy. We like to be able to do whatever we want to do. And I think that that is problematic. And ultimately all the things we learn as physicians are anti-capitation and they favor fee-for-service. It's just that in the current world, fee-for-service doesn't work from my perspective. I think that was really well put. I think you, you that's directly it. It's our culture. I mean, there are many doctors, even listening to this conversation, you'll say, oh, God, they're talking about capitation, and, you know, they don't understand that you, you that that's a loss of autonomy, and it's this and this and the other thing. And, and to that degree, they're correct in the sense that you can't just go and do anything you want. There is a collective shared agreement that you're trying to coordinate, almost like an organism. Like if you're a tissue in a in a body, you you do coordinate with the other tissues and organs and systems. And there is a kind of a general ethos and telos and flow to, to where you're going. And I think we've not had that in health 1.0 and 2.0. It, it, 2.0 is more of a top-down, okay, we're just going to do this, and then there's general rebellion or, 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 or quiet quitting, just phoning it in. I think three point, a 3.0 model is more, okay, listen, no, actually, we need to change our, even our expectations of what it means to be a physician and what it means to, to work in a, in a large organization or even a smaller organization or as part of a de facto network of physicians. And it, uh, you know, and so some people opt out and they go, I'm going to do direct primary care and I'll get a, I'll get a capitated rate to take care of patients and I'll do it my way. And that's wonderful, except that it doesn't integrate with the larger system unless they generate structures to do that. So it, it is the kind of one of the chal big challenges moving forward. Well, that model requires that people be able to pay a lot more to get the added convenience. And there's a segment that can do that, but it won't solve the problem of the more general population. Again, I, I just see that I would much rather generate income by helping patients avoid heart attacks and strokes and cancer. You know, when I became the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, uh, our hypertension control rate, the number one cause of stroke was similar to the rest of the nation, a little bit better. We were maybe at 60%, the nation was 55. And we agreed that every doctor, not just primary care, 
would look at the blood pressure. Maybe the specialist couldn't take care of it, but the specialist would know whether it was normal or not and could make sure the patient got taken care of. We got that over 90%, diminishing strokes by 30%. The same when it came to heart disease with blood lipids, hypertension, smoking, et cetera. We dropped the rate of patients developing a heart attack by 40%, the chance of dying from heart disease by 50%. Same thing when it came to colon cancer. Every doctor can look on a chart and say, did you have your proper screening? And I don't mean having some kind of colonoscopy. I'm talking about getting a fit test, a fecal immunochemical test that you can do in your bathroom in five minutes at home without a bowel prep. How hard should it be? The nation is around 60%. We got up to 90% again, saving 40% of people from developing metastatic disease and cancer. These are the kinds of things I would think would drive doctors to say, I'd much rather do those things than add another patient and another patient and another patient. But somehow that passion isn't there and again, when you ask me why, I just think there's this fear that somehow we're going to give up what we have today. And when I look at it, what we have today isn't that great. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. And, and the stuff you're talking about isn't sexy. It's not sexy to, you know, prevent a colon cancer or prevent a heart attack. It's sexy to go in with a, with a stent and a, a dramatically open up, get Timmy three flow out of this thing. That's acutely, you know, occluded. And that's, that's the, the cool autonomy. And that's where you're, you know, the top gun maverick doing your thing. And I think we're very conditioned by that kind of, uh, that, that kind of glory and not, looking at the just sheer number of lives and suffering and area under the curve of good we're doing in the world by what you're pointing at. And that's, a, again, that's cultural conditioning from years. It's almost like a karmic thing, like how many millennia of physicians have, have had this kind of autonomy and shamanic kind of a role in the community and, and they feel that it's being, it's being reduced, right? But I think all of, there's room for all of that. There's, there, there, there is a holistic way of looking at this that actually incorporates all aspects of that. And and again, it does. Some of it becomes a cultural shift, like what gives us, you know, joy in in medicine. Um, yeah. So I, I hate to think of a show when we're not controversial. So let me look at that in the same context and move on to Darwin. You know, if life is evolutionary and not divinely given, then might much of our end of life care be creating more harm than good? Or phrased differently, Zubin is the idea to save a life at any cost, an artificial construct. And if not, if it is an artificial construct, what should we be doing? I mean, I think of patients I've taken care of with a head and neck cancer, the tongue, who've had a series of surgeries. They can't speak, they can't eat, they can't breathe. Or I just read about a patient who spent 900 days intubated on a respirator in the ICU after COVID when does medical care become torture? Oh, this, again, it gets back to this left brain, right brain thing. There is no part of a right brain approach to this issue that would do the 900 days COVID post ventilator thing. There, because again, that's doing things to people. It's turning people into into machines that are failing as a model. Like the, the left brain is a, hey, everything's a machine and the machine is working or not working. And humans are not, they can't be reduced to mechanistics. They're, they're very dynamic 
crazy complex processes that include this element of spirituality, even a non non religious spirituality, where it's like, no, there's meaning, there's purpose, there's there's awareness. Like that's what makes humans just absolutely beyond uh, any mechanistic description of them that that could reduce anything to that. So what we're doing now is is from an evolutionary standpoint, it's crazy because it doesn't make any sense. Of course, we're a little beyond even standard evolution now because our technology is helping us. So we're evolving our technology as a kind of proxy for our DNA. Um, and it doesn't even make sense, I think, from a, any religious-based spiritual approach because th this, you know, it's it's decidedly unnatural to draw things out in, in a way that is against what even the patient would want if they were able to speak. We haven't had the conversations. We're fear-based. And, and ultimately, Robbie, it's our fear of death because we are um, in the dark as to what it is we actually are. So we live in this kind of dark pall of fear. And as doctors, we're, we suffer from it because we won't even talk about it with our patients because in some way it reflects back to us and our accomplishments and our, our, and our conditioning and our culture. I wonder how you're going to apply this left brain, right brain, right brain putting in context to the things we've learned from Albert Einstein. Um, you know, the, the idea that somehow everything is relative. Is that a question of putting it into context, taking it out of context? Is the scientific method the final arbiter for medicine, or should we follow a different master? Ooh, man, you're asking a good question. So Einstein, fascinating guy, because what he would do, you would think, oh, Einstein's the epitome of the left brain scientist. Uh, not at all. In fact, what McGilchrist argues in his book is that the idea of science and reason is not a left brain thing. Reason is a right brain scenario. It's taking data from the world, taking information, and actually applying the filter of context and common sense. And what Einstein used to do is he would bang away at a problem in a reductionist way as long as he could, and then he would stop. And he would just give up and he would go to sleep and the inductive, intuitive processes that are much more right brain oriented would speak. And that's how he would get these insights that were beyond, I mean, how would you derive the theory of relativity from first principles? You can't. It's almost an intuitive leap that he made. And the, the fact that everything is relative, that time and space are plastic was a transformative idea. And even, um, you know, even Einstein would say things like, you know, we're tr trying to probe the mind of God here, and the more you look, the deeper the mystery, and you should celebrate the mystery. Uh, and so, again, I think it relates again to this idea that we are these, the mind is a mind kind of divided into these realms, and increasingly one realm is, is becoming ascendant. And it may not be the realm that should be ascendant, it's the servant rather than the master. With Jeremy not being here today, I have to take a guess, Zubin, about a question he might ask. He's an historian. So I'm going to ask you, given everything you've talked about for the past half hour, if you had to pick a president from the past to lead healthcare into the future, one who could understand this newer definition of left brain and right brain, who would it be and why? Wow, man, that's putting me on the spot. Let me think of my history here. I think I would it would be a split between Teddy Roosevelt, perhaps, FDR or JFK. 
And the reason I pick these three is what they found, uh, what they could do, it seemed, was integrate very complex information like World War II with FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, more the sort of general milieu of everything and the wars that were going on and so on. But, but, but and John F. Kennedy with the, the moonshot, the Soviets, the Cuban Missile Crisis, integrate all this kind of very reductionist data with deep understanding of the connections between humans, how to inspire them, how to move them through crisis, how to actually embody some of the values that we claim to have in America and, and embody them and show them in a way that actually inspires others. I think I would, I would vote for those guys. They were the perfect balance of right brain, left brain, uh, and the transcendent quality that comes when those are in balance. I, too, think of three people. One person is Abraham Lincoln, who tackled probably the hardest question our nation has had, that of slavery, which should be an easy question, but not in the context in which he lived. He had to balance the sides. He had to bring into his cabinet, as Doris Kern Goodwin has pointed out, individuals from different backgrounds, often not from his own party. And he was able to not do what most people would do. I'll call it like left brain in quotes, logical approach, but to put everything into a context. I agree with you also about JFK, but to me, the big thing is he was gonna take the leap, put a man on the moon. And I think for healthcare, that's what we need. We need someone willing to take the risk, willing to make that commitment, not just sometime in the future, but he set a 10-year deadline and met that deadline. And the third person I'd put is George Washington. And I'd put him for two reasons. First of all, in the context of the immediate, he could see the difference between the United States being a free country and being a country under Britain. He could see the opportunities through linking together with the French. And then when he could have become a monarch and taken a third term and fourth term, he could see the problems that would create. And he put the nation in front of himself. And I think that that's going to be required for us to move healthcare into the future. We'll see whether medicine can have the kinds of leaders that you and I both see and see what Jeremy says in the next program. For the listeners, we hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever other podcast platform you use. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on healthcare topics, you can visit my website, robertperlmd.com or our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC, HC Podcast. And thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Kaur, and Zub Dr. Zubin Damania. Have a great day.